Guam surviving life. Tough questions, real answers, awesome hacks. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Mom Surviving Life. I'm Erica and I'm joined with Carla. We are briefly going to talk about why we first wanted to do this. We are going to introduce ourselves and then we're going to talk about our pregnancy stories. We are going to be using some medical terms today. However, don't worry because we're going to define all of them. If you enjoy this podcast, please hit the subscribe button as we put out new episodes every Monday. And by hitting the subscribe, you'll be the first to hear it when it drops. And now without further ado, episode one. So I wanted to do something like this podcast with Erica for a while now. Erica has been my mom guru since she was about a year ahead of me. She had given me a lot of information and tips and tricks and things I should know and how to handle certain situations throughout my pregnancy. And even now, as I have a six-month-old daughter, I had talked to Erica about starting this a while ago so we could help other moms in the same situation. I love my mom dearly, but she does not remember a lot of what she did for us when we were babies. So I like that I could reach out to other mom friends and get information. That's what I want this to be for everyone listening. A place where you can get information from moms like you going through the same everyday situations. If one person can learn something to help survive their life as a mom, then I will feel like we have done something. Okay, so first off, I'm not an expert at all, but I totally appreciate Carla's kind, amazing words for me. I'm a bit of a control freak. I love having things labeled, organized, and looking perfectly. I love sharing tips and tricks I have found along the way because what good is keeping a great idea to yourself? Carla was the first person to tell me that her and I should do a podcast together. So did my cousin and his partner who I pumped for their baby for the first six months of his life. I finally agreed after I went to the grocery store and was in the baby aisle trying to figure out what flavor of puffs to get my kids. This dad was trying to find baby food pouches and grabbed a whole box of the same ones. I said, excuse me, but they sell those by the box and you'll save 23 cents. He's like, oh, thank you. That's such a good idea. I then showed him the screw on spoons that you can add to a food pouch. I told him, these are only $3. He's like, three bucks? That's amazing. I said, yeah, and they're dishwasher safe, which side note, all my baby stuff is dishwasher safe because I don't have time to sit there and hand wash anything. After walking away from that exchange and realizing how good it felt to help a total stranger, I texted Carla on the way home from the grocery store and said, okay, I'm finally ready to do this. Let's sit down and make a podcast. As a single parent of twins, I'm always trying to stretch my money, find the cheapest, easiest, most efficient way of doing anything. I hope some parents can find this podcast helpful. However, what works for me and my kids may not work for you and yours. Some of my hacks may even be a godsend to some parents, but to others, you will laugh and think, that's never going to work with my kids. You're nuts. I really hope that we can help just one mom an episode either not feel so alone or help them make their lives easier, even if it's just to have a laugh. I'm Erica. Here's my intro and pregnancy story. I was born and raised on a farm north of London. I moved to Windsor when I was 18 for school, and then I more or less bounced back and forth between Windsor and London from the time I was 18 until I was 30. I went to school to be a lawyer and transferred to the college in Windsor two years into my university career and got a diploma in police foundations. I then worked security and bartending and serving until about 2016 when I was 26. I went to 
back to St. Clair and got a diploma in paralegal studies, and I am currently a licensed paralegal, and I bartend on the side. I am a mom of 14-month-old mono-mono twins. It is a very rare form of twins that I'm going to discuss why it's such a rare form of twins and the pregnancy later on in my intro. I am a single parent. I currently live with my parents. My story begins actually before I found out that I was pregnant with my twins. I was bartending and I had a, it felt like I got stabbed and it felt like an appendicitis mixed into one, but it was on the wrong side of my body. It was on the left side. I wasn't a hundred percent sure what was going on. I called my mom and I'm like, what is going on with my body? And she's like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm two hours away. Maybe go to the hospital and get it checked. I texted my partner at the time and I said, you need to leave your parents' house. He was there having dinner. Don't make it a big deal, but I need to go to the hospital. Something's wrong with me. I then called my boss who had to come in and cover the rest of my shift. I went to the hospital. When they finally took me back, they gave me a urine test. And I know as a female who is sexually active, a urine test is to test if you're pregnant. And because they didn't take me for an x-ray, I knew that I was pregnant, but I didn't want to tell my partner because I knew, obviously, with this pain, that something was really wrong. I had to wait, I think, about two more hours before the doctor came into the room that I was in and pushed on my stomach. And when he pushed on my left side, right about where my ovary was, it was unbearable pain and I screamed. My partner was there and he was like, what is wrong? So the doctor told us that I was pregnant and it was probably an ectopic pregnancy. There was no ultrasound tech at that time and we had to go home and come back in the morning for an ultrasound. We go home, we discuss the fact that it's an ectopic pregnancy. I had to explain to my partner that it was going to be removed and that I was going to have to go for surgery. We were both pretty upset about it because while we hadn't planned on getting pregnant, it was still kind of hard to accept that I wasn't able to carry a viable fetus. The next morning we go back to the hospital, they do a bunch of ultrasounds, they had to re-triage me into a merge, and I had to wait I don't know how long for them to confirm that it was an ectopic pregnancy, and I remember sitting in the emergency department getting readmitted, and I tried to take a drink of water. The emergency nurse said, you can't drink that, and I knew immediately from having friends in the medical community that obviously I'm going for surgery, and this is serious. I, when I was able to get into a private room, um, called my mom and told her that it was an ectopic pregnancy, and they were going to have to operate. An ectopic pregnancy is you conceive, but it forms outside of the uterus. There are a number of different places that this can take place. Most common is in the fallopian tube. Mine was on my ovary, so that was a 1-3% to of all ectopic pregnancies is takes place on your ovary. It was very rare. Knowing what I know now, I probably shouldn't have left the hospital that night. I probably should have stayed in case something happened because ectopic pregnancies are very serious and some of them can be fatal. They are not something to be taken lightly, and if you are told well, you need to go home and come back the next day. You need to tell the doctor, nope, I'm staying here. You need to admit me. You need to advocate that for yourself because that was something that I didn't do. I'm glad that I'm okay, but the fear of what if something bad had happened is really concerning. I called my mom and I'm like, you need to come to Windsor. I'm going to have surgery today. 
And she was like, okay, I'll get in the vehicle and drive. And this is about 11 o'clock in the morning. So she was going to get there around 1.30. I was then transferred from one hospital in Windsor to the maternity hospital in Windsor. I was supposed to be taken by ambulance. 20 minutes before I was supposed to get into an ambulance, there was a motor vehicle accident that required the ambulance that I was going to take. So I had to get myself from hospital A to hospital B. I was transferred by my partner. I then was readmitted to that hospital, to the emergency department, and then admitted to a floor, which was the maternity floor. I had my surgery at seven o'clock that night and was hoping to leave that same evening. Unfortunately, they didn't like what my scans were doing. And at this point, I just thought that I'd had an ectopic pregnancy and they had removed it. I had either low blood pressure, which is very common for me, or I had something weird in my blood work, which they were obviously keeping me overnight for a reason. My mom and my partner went back to my place that night, came back in the morning, brought me home. My mom stayed with me for a couple days. I was very sore. It was actually a very easy procedure. They did it laroscopically, which means they make really small incisions. So I had an incision at the bottom of my belly button an incision of the left lower area where my ovary was, and then one right above my pubic bone. I didn't require any stitches. I just had, I think, butterfly sutures and then clear bandage put right on top. And that was all I had. And they just said, no, we can prescribe you pain meds. And I ended up just taking Tylenol and Advil. I didn't want any pain meds. I think I took Tylenol 2s for about two days. They made me really nauseous and it was really difficult. Upon leaving the hospital, they told me that I had to monitor my HCG hormone, which is your pregnancy hormone. A normal person has four is what your count should be if you're not pregnant at all. The count when I left the hospital was 3,000 and they told me that I had to go get blood work to check it. Uh, once a week for the next six weeks. So the following week, I went to go, got my blood work, and I went through Life Labs, which in Canada allows you to check your blood work online so you can get the results. And my levels were 2200, so 2200. And it was a little bit easier for me to monitor because I'm a bit of a control freak. So it was easier for me to check because my OB appointments were every three weeks. Two weeks after my ectopic, I went again for blood work and I checked and my levels were 22,000. There was an obvious I immediately called my best friend, who is a registered nurse, and asked her what was going on. She said it was probably just typo. They probably added an extra digit by accident. So I called my OB office and they said, we're going to bring you in for an ultrasound tomorrow. I had an ultrasound there. I brought my friend Shanna with me because I was really nervous about everything going on. They did the ultrasound and they also did a transvaginal ultrasound, which is where they take a wand and they put a bag over top. They put lube on it and they insert it into your vagina. They check an ultrasound through your cervix and through the lower part of your body. It's to get a more in-depth read of your uterus. I've had a number of different transvaginal ultrasounds with regards to this. So I go to the ultrasound clinic and I bring my friend Shanna. She was not allowed in the room with me. I was then given a regular ultrasound where they put gel on the wand like you see in the movies and they go around my belly. And I was also given a transvaginal ultrasound. When I had my ectopic pregnancy, I did not have any ultrasound pictures. I wasn't allowed to look at the screen. I wasn't allowed to have any pictures from that it was very much the ultrasound tech looked at the screen and told me what she saw and that was it if she told me anything so this time i said to the tech look i didn't get any information the last time i had an ultrasound 
I want to see one image. So the ultrasound tech showed me one image. Immediately upon leaving the clinic, I googled seven-week ultrasound. The first two images looked identical to what she had shown me. I knew I was still pregnant. I told Shanna on the way out of the clinic. I sat in my vehicle and I called my partner and was like, well, good news, bad news. Good news is nothing's wrong. The bad news is I'm still pregnant because we had not planned on conceiving. We didn't even really know at this point. We had talked immediately after the ectopic pregnancy about going back on birth control. However, this is now currently 15 days after I was discharged from the hospital that I found out that I was still pregnant with a baby in my uterus as opposed to the ectopic pregnancy where the baby was on my ovary. I also want to note that during my ectopic pregnancy, I actually didn't have any reproductive parts removed from my body, so I still was able to keep both ovaries, which was a risk when they did the surgery, and both my fallopian tubes were completely fine. My first call was to my partner to explain that I was still pregnant. The second call I made was to my parents and explained to them that I was still pregnant. My mom was shocked and excited, and my dad has this reaction where he just purses his lips and rolls up on his toes and I could kind of hear that through the phone and I was like okay so my dad's a bit shocked I remember looking at my friend Shanna going what am I supposed to do because I was not prepared to have a baby at this point we were hoping to have children two three years down the road and she just turned and looked at me and said it's okay I'm pregnant too and I'm like okay so I guess I'm not in this alone that made me feel a lot better knowing that she was pregnant too we told my partner's parents um, his mom had a birthday a week later, so we gave her a card that said, Happy Birthday, Grandma. His one brother was there, and his dad, and everyone was, like, really weirded out that we wanted everyone in the room when we gave her this birthday card, and they didn't really understand why, and we had shirts made that said, Do I look pregnant? And my partner had one that said, Do I look like a dad? So when she was reading the card, we opened up our sweaters, and we had these shirts on. His mom was super excited. His dad was kind of shocked, but happy for us. And his brother was, oh my God, you're going to be a dad. And his mom was like, and you're going to be an uncle. That was at about nine weeks. At 11 weeks, I went to my OB's office and we did a Doppler, which is where they take, it's like a microphone and they stick it on your stomach and you get to hear the heartbeat. So I cried during that appointment, which is totally normal. I thought I had heard two heartbeats, but my OB said, nope, there's just one. My partner and I had announced because that coming weekend, I was going away for girls weekend and there was no way that I was going to convince the people that I would be with that I was not drinking for no good reason, especially just even one drink. So we announced the Tuesday afterwards, I went for an ultrasound. As I was laying there and the tech wanded my stomach like three times, looked at the screen and was like, I'll be right back. And I'm like, is something wrong? And she goes, no, no, everything's fine. Leaves for probably five minutes, which felt like an hour. Came back, she turns the screen towards me and goes, there's one head, there's the other. I am in complete shock. And I'm like, what did you just say? And she's like, you're having twins. And I'm like, you need to go get him. She then asked me why. And I said, I cannot sit here for however long this ultrasound is going to take and not text him and tell him that we're having twins. So she said, okay. She went to the waiting room, got my partner, brought him in. When she told him that it was twins, I just kind of saw the color leave his face and him go into a huge shock. Immediately, I actually called my cousin, Jacqueline, who also is a twin mom. I said to her, I'm sitting in the ultrasound and I just got told that I'm having twins. And her first response was, so when are you moving home? I was currently living in Windsor, which is two hours away from all of my family, which is where my partner was from. Looked at my partner and said, we have to move to London. 
he didn't really understand how much work twins was in the beginning. After leaving that appointment, we had a big long talk about it. The ultrasound tech came back into the room with, I believe, a doctor, and they kept talking about the membrane. There's no membrane. This being my first pregnancy, not knowing a lot about twins. I mean, my cousin had twins, so I had a basic grasp, but I knew nothing. So the tech and the doctor could not find a membrane. I got scheduled for another ultrasound the following week at the hospital because I was currently at the ultrasound clinic. Between my 12-week ultrasound and my 15-week OB visit, I googled wet twins, no membrane, found out about monochronionic, monoamniotic twins, which are two babies that are, they're in the same amniotic sac from the moment they're conceived to when they're born. Most babies have their own amniotic sac. When my cousin had her twins, we learned that there was two kinds, die-die and mono-die. Die-die means that there's two placentas and two amniotic sacs. Mono-die means that there's one placenta but two amniotic sacs. So when I found out about mono-mono twins, I'm like, this isn't really a thing. And then I kind of dug a little deeper and I had access to my college's medical database. So I went onto there and I googled mono-mono twins. Please do not google what mono-mono twins are because I then called my mom about five minutes later crying my eyes out because the miscarry rate between week one and week 20 is somewhere between 70 and 80%. If you make it to your scheduled due date, you're going to have children that have mental physical disabilities, they're going to have mental health issues, they're going to be developmentally delayed, they're going to have all these different kind of birth defects. I'm now freaking out thinking that this is going to be a very traumatic pregnancy, that I'm going to have children that are going to be medically dependent and dependent on me for the rest of my life. And I called my mom crying. Her response was, you haven't even talked to a doctor. You've just Googled things. Stop Googling, go back to work. And I'm like, thanks mom. Thanks for the vote of confidence and support. So I knew that I needed to be checked by a MFM, which is multiple fetal medicine doctor, which my OB was not certified to be. The current OB that I had week zero to week 15. And I knew that I needed to be where there was a level three NICU, which unfortunately Windsor is about a level one and a half. The closest one would have been in Michigan. And I was not going to go to Michigan to have my babies. So the decision was made to be transferred to an OB in London. Um, ironically, the OB that I was transferred to delivered the last set of mono-mono twins in London and actually delivered my cousin's babies. By the time my 15-week OB appointment had rolled around, I had already picked the OB in London that I wanted and was asked to be transferred to that OB. I was given an appointment the following week, which worried me because generally when you get transferred to a specialist, it's not seven days later that you have an appointment with them. The initial appointment, both my partner and my mom went to because my mom had a whole bunch of questions as well. When we went to the 16-week appointment in London, I was confirmed to have mono-mono twins and my OB then discussed me moving to London and into the hospital nine weeks later. She actually wanted me to move into the hospital at week 24, which would have been eight weeks. And I said, I can't quit my job and pack up my entire house in eight weeks. We settled on 25 weeks that I would be going inpatient. I talked to my current boss that I had in Windsor, packed up everything, and we moved to London on Labor Day weekend. And I was admitted to hospital the Tuesday after Labor Day. With Mono Mono Twins, it is almost required in Canada, if it not is required in Canada, for you to be admitted to hospital 
for consistent and daily monitoring. It is an extremely high-risk pregnancy because the babies that are born in the same amniotic sac, there is risk of TTTS, which is twin-to-twin transfusion, where the blood leaves the placenta, goes into one baby, and then goes into the second baby, but because there's, there's no nutrients going to the second baby, it becomes very malnourished. I had to be watched for that. The other risk is cord entanglement, which has a laundry list of what could possibly happen. The babies could knot their two cords together, restricting blood flow. The babies could strangle the other baby with their umbilical cord. There was also the risk that they might entangle their own cord and cause a knot, which is actually a risk for every baby, but it's more of a risk for mono-mono twins because there's two babies kicking around and moving stuff. So at week 25, I was admitted, and for the first five days in hospital, I was given NSTs, which are called non-stress tests, where they put the puck on your belly to monitor the baby's heartbeat and another puck to monitor contractions. I had three pucks on my belly. NSTs took about an hour. On the fifth day, the OB said, I want to start ultrasounding you every other day. At this point in my pregnancy, I had had nine ultrasounds. For most people, you only get four. So for those nine ultrasounds, I had been given a whole bunch of pictures. I had gone for ultrasounds so much that they didn't even really phase me anymore. Going for every other day ultrasounds, I would go to the ultrasound floor and unit. They'd put the wand on my belly. I'd say, we still have two heartbeats and they're still moving good. The tech would say yes. And I would put on a movie while they did my ultrasound. I was 26 weeks pregnant when they started doing all these ultrasounds. I had really celebrated the fact that I was living in a hospital pregnant, and I know that sounds really weird, but as a mono-mono twin mom, you get this weird sense of, I'm in a hospital now, I'm, I've made it, I've gotten to the safe place, you know, if anything goes wrong, I'm here, they can help, the babies are going to be safe. It is also still very scary because anytime that you have a pain, they kick really hard, they haven't moved in half hour to an hour, you get worried that, no, something's wrong. So going for daily ultrasounds, I found a lovely little hack that I'm going to share with you. When you go for your ultrasounds, take baby wipes. You can wipe up all that goo and you feel a lot better afterwards because I went for hour ultrasounds every other day. First of all, my belly was so dry from that gel. I don't know if there's alcohol in it or something in it dried out my belly. So I had to get all that gook off. As a pregnant woman, 28 plus weeks in the hospital, I was very swollen. I was very bloated. At this point, I think I had gained 60 pounds, and I carried most of my pregnancy in my back. So the last thing I wanted to do was take more than one shower a day. And I know that sounds awful, but I was exhausted. I was growing two tiny humans, and I didn't want to take more showers than I had to. So I either showered after the ultrasound, but even still, I would get ultrasound goo on my clothes, so I would just take baby wipes. You feel a lot better afterwards. Honestly, saved me so much time. With going for that many ultrasounds, I started to get really picky about the pictures that I wanted. I would ask, can I get a foot? Do you have a hand? I want to see their face. And it got to a point where I was really just trying to get through the day. It was very mentally exhausting going through the same routine over and over. I either would have an ultrasound or I would have an NST. Being in the hospital for 58 days, it really wore on me. When is this going to be over? When am I going to see the light at the end of the tunnel? When am I going to get to meet my babies? I mean, I tried to keep my spirits up. I also didn't publicize that I was in the hospital either, because for a lot of people, when you go into the hospital, it's something's wrong with you. There's a risk, which yes, there was a risk, but I wasn't sick. I wasn't scared. There wasn't a reason for me to be in the hospital besides the fact that it was a mono-mono twin 
pregnancy. I had to explain this repeatedly to friends and family, nurses, nursing students, porters, which are the people that take you around the hospital in a wheelchair, other moms that were on the unit that I was on, which is called antenatal. Antenatal unit is the unit that you're on when you are pregnant and you need to be monitored closely. I believe London at Victoria Hospital is the only one from Windsor to Woodstock, if not towards Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo, Guelph area. It's about 20 women when I was there. After four weeks of being in the hospital at 29 weeks, I had an OB who he was unfamiliar with my case. Baby B was having intermittent reverse flow. She was missing a blood vessel, so she was actually smaller. She was in the two percentile for my entire pregnancy. He came into my room after my first ultrasound and tells me that we need to start steroid shots immediately. We need to transfer me to L&D, which is labor and delivery. I need to deliver these babies within the next 48 hours. I just looked at him like he had four heads, and I'm like, why? Because I had already talked to the ultrasound tech earlier that day, and she said that there was no change between my ultrasound before and the ultrasound that had just taken place earlier that day. And he said, well, baby B has reverse intermittent flow. Reverse intermittent flow is when a normal umbilical cord has three blood vessels. Baby B had two. So in a three-vesseled cord, which is what baby A had, you have two veins where the blood is going directly in non-stop to the baby and you have one blood vessel where the blood is coming out of the baby and back to the placenta. Because baby B only had two blood vessels, one was a direct line in and it was a one-way street. The other blood vessel, blood was going in and coming back out. Because of this, Kinsley was in the two percentile for weight for my entire pregnancy and she was actually born a pound smaller than her sister. When this OB came into my hospital room and told me we were going to start everything and it was 29 weeks, I had done enough research and I had talked to the OB that I was supposed to have enough that I knew this was not when I was supposed to have my babies. So I advocated for myself. I told the OB that I did not want to deliver at that point, that he needed to go review my chart and talk to my OB before he decided to administer anything to me. And he left the room and he came back about two hours later and apologized to me. And I said, I would rather see the OB that I have or another OB that was there on a daily basis. I asked that OB not to come back. What you did was extremely unprofessional. You did not review my chart and I don't want to see you again. And he left the room and I don't believe I saw that OB again. I then saw the resident for the rest of that week, which is the doctor in training on the floor, who I actually really liked. I'd gotten to know her because she had just started the week that I was admitted, so she was on week four. So I was on really good terms with her. I had to wait another four weeks to deliver. With Mono Mono Twins, when you make it to week 28, it's a big deal because you are now at a point where you can receive steroids for lung development with your babies and you can actually have your babies. I was at week 29, my babies were not done cooking. Week 31, my OB came into my room and told me that they had scheduled a date for Halloween, which I secretly wanted as my baby's birth date because I'm obsessed with Halloween. My babies were born on Halloween. We made it to the scheduled date. The entire time that I was inpatient, I only ever had that one instance where stuff was hitting the fan. For as high risk as my pregnancy was, for as long as I was inpatient, it was a long road mentally being a healthy person and being put on bed rest and in the hospital for two months. For my delivery, I was actually woken up two hours before I normally get up and I was told, we're going to take you to labor 
were in delivery right now. And I was shocked because I hadn't showered that day. I didn't pack anything because I thought I had another two hours to sleep, get up, shower, do whatever I wanted. And they told me I had 20 minutes. I quickly had a shower because it was the only shower I was going to get for the next two days. I packed up all my stuff and I was moved down to labor and delivery where they made me take a wheelchair about 50 feet, which was very frustrating for me because I'm a very active person. So I had to sit in a wheelchair and be wheeled from the room that I was in on antenatal down the hall to the labor and delivery room. I was then given a magnesium drip and I have to say two days and the day before I was scheduled to have my c-section I was given steroid shots for lung development to ensure that my girls did not have any respiratory problems. That was a very painful shot. It's given in your butt and your butt is then very very tender which is super fun when you're put on bed rest and the only thing that you can do is lay in bed. So I slept on my side basically the last two days of my pregnancy. When I was given the magnesium drip the day of my C-section, my arm went super cold and then was super warm. I then had a very dry mouth. My arm was full pins and needles. I got very hot. I was very sweaty. And this is all in the course of about the first half hour of the magnesium drip, and it lasts about three hours. My entire pregnancy, I had not experienced anything as awful as that, and I threw up constantly for the first trimester. That tells you how fun a magnesium drip is. The magnesium drip is to stop or prevent seizures in premature babies. I had a scheduled c-section at 33 weeks and two days, which for most people who have full-term babies think that that is way too soon to have your babies. However, full-term for mono-mono twins is actually 34 weeks, and most, if not all, North American hospitals will not allow you to deliver past 34 weeks. Going in for the C-section, I was brought into an OR, and I was given a spinal tap, which they basically numb you from just below your bra line all the way to your toes. They tested me with an ice cube and I freaked out because I could feel the ice cube. And they said, no, 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 You're not supposed to feel the ice cube. You're supposed to feel the coldness of the ice cube. And I'm like, oh, I can't feel that. And they said, okay, you're ready to go. So they had cut me open. They pulled out Kinsley, and which is my firstborn. And she didn't cry immediately from being pulled out of the womb, which was terrifying because it felt like an hour that she didn't cry. And in reality, it was probably about seven seconds. OB had told me that she was a beautiful baby girl. She was whisked away to the NICU. When they delivered Regan, which was a minute later, all I heard from my OB was, uh-oh, which is the last thing you want to hear from your OB in the OR during your C-section. I freaked out and was like, what's wrong? And all she said was, we took your babies out backwards. And I said, is that a problem? And of course, I'm talking through a curtain, so I actually can't see my OB, my kids, or anything. And all she said was, no, no, it's fine. We'll just have to adjust all of your charting. So that was a complication that I had to encounter and I still encounter with my kids because some of the scans that I had during the pregnancy the doctors want to know about. My kids were born a minute apart and taken immediately to the NICU where my partner who was in the OR with me went with them. I was brought back to the waiting room post section where my mom was waiting for me. That's where I'm going to end my story for right now because we're going to talk in a later episode about the NICU and NICU babies, preemie babies, and full-term babies. And now I'm going to give it to Carla and she's going to do her intro and pregnancy story. 
I'm Carla. I'm 31 years old. I was born and raised in Windsor, Essex County. I went to Niagara College to be a pastry chef and a chef. During my schooling, I found out I had a heart condition that stopped me from working in hot kitchens, to which I went to bartending as I wanted to stay in the food and beverage industry. I got a job with my current employer, bartending. This job led me to moving into a revenue clerk position. They sent me back to school for accounting. I am now an accountant for my current employer. I've been married to my husband, Shane, for two and a half years, and we have a beautiful baby girl that is six months old named Ella. So I always knew I wanted to be a mom. So before we got married two and a half years ago, in May of 2018, we started talking about what we wanted for a family. For me, it was always to get married and have kids. My parents and I are very traditional in that sense. So Shane and I talked about starting to try for a family right after we got married. He was 32 when we got married and I was 29. Neither one of us wanted to wait too long as we were not getting any younger. So after we got married, we planned our honeymoon for St. Lucia. When I went to my gynecologist, about getting my IUD out before the honeymoon as it would take normally about two to three months to get your body back on track. He said, keep your IUD in. You are going to a country that has a high Zika risk. Zika virus is a virus that you get from a mosquito that can be passed from a pregnant woman to her baby and can cause certain birth defects to the baby. Also, there is no vaccine or medicine for Zika virus, so my gynecologist highly recommended we wait to get my IUD out so we don't risk contracting Zika virus to a baby. Since our honeymoon was already planned, we went, and because the Zika virus can lay dormant in your body, for six months, we waited to get my IUD out. We tried for about nine months without tracking anything. And come September, I was like, this isn't working. We need to follow my ovulation schedule and try when I'm ovulating. So I tracked my period for about a month. And then the first ovulation that came up, we made sure to try then. So around November, I started having symptoms, but I really didn't think much of it. I was hungry all the time. My boobs hurt a little, but nothing out of the ordinary as I'm a woman with fairly large boobs. So I went to my friend's house and she told me that she was pregnant. I started asking her her symptoms and how she was feeling and started to realize that I had all of the same symptoms. My best friend who was doing IVF had a ton of pregnancy tests lying around and told me to go pee on a stick. I said, I love you, but this is something I want to do either on my own or with Shane. So she sent me home with a pregnancy test. First thing I did in the morning as I couldn't really sleep was take the test. They say your urine first thing in the morning is the best for a pregnancy test. So sure enough, I peed on the stick and I got two little pink lines, which means positive. My husband had slept on the couch that night because he was starting midnight that night and he wanted to stay up and watch TV so he could prepare for his night shift. Surprisingly enough, he came downstairs and I'm awake, seven o'clock in the morning. I'm just chilling in bed and I say, guess what? I think we're pregnant. He's like, seriously? And I went and got the test and showed it to him. He was very excited and nervous as around now we've been trying for close to a year. I'd already downloaded a pregnancy app and figured out how far along I was, which was about six weeks. So obviously, because I brought a pregnancy test home for my friend, I texted her and told her the good news. I was so excited and because my husband was at work all night and I was home alone, I was so anxious. My sister was vacationing in Antigua and was messaging me asking how things were going and I kind of gave her a weird response. So she called me. I was so excited I had to tell her. Since she is my twin, we tell each other everything and it only made sense. After that, we had decided that we would only tell people in person and that this is not something that gets put on Facebook or social media until everybody close to us got told. So immediately we figured out that in a week, 
we would be seeing my side of the family at my niece and nephew's birthday party. So as we're riding the high of being pregnant, sometimes there's a complication. And two days after finding out I was pregnant, I woke up at six in the morning in a puddle of blood. I was terrified. All I could do was clean up the mess and I went upstairs to wake my husband and tell him what was going on. Obviously being pregnant for the first time, I had no idea what to expect. My husband asked if I was still bleeding. I said, not really, but I still think we should go to the hospital just to be safe. So we did. So at the hospital, because I already knew I was pregnant, they still did blood work and urine tests to confirm as I hadn't seen my doctor yet. And then they sent me for an ultrasound. Because I was so early, I had to have a transvaginal ultrasound and was not allowed to see the monitor. Ultrasound tech did tell me that they could see a heartbeat, but that's all they would tell me. When I saw the doctor, she told me that I had a burst hematoma. A hematoma is basically a bruise on your uterus. The hematoma I had is pretty much just a bruise from a broken blood vessel in my uterus that burst, hence the blood. The doctor assured me that there was nothing to worry about and that we were just to refrain from having sex for the next six weeks. After leaving the hospital, I was scared. I just woke up in a puddle of blood, and even though I was told everything was okay, I was still scared. My anxiety never really went away as far as having sex was concerned. Even after six weeks, I was terrified what sex could do and my sex drive completely disappeared while I was pregnant. So because we had agreed to tell my family at my niece and nephew's birthday, I didn't want to call my mom to tell her what was going on. At my niece and nephew's birthday, we gave them a card and in that card had a piece of paper and it said, happy birthday. We are going to take you to do something fun for your birthday, but that's not all. You're also getting a new baby cousin coming July, 2020. We had my nephew read it out loud and my sister videotaped the whole thing. Everyone was so excited and my dad started crying, which he cries at everything, so it was normal. Obviously, everybody already knew we were trying, but it was still a super fun and exciting time. Once that initial excitement wore off, I started to tell them about what we went through that week and how we found out about the hemo. I told them exactly what the doctor said and that everything should be fine and there's nothing to worry about. So two weeks later, I had my dating ultrasound at eight weeks, five days, where Shane and I actually got to see the baby and we got pictures to take home. We then started telling close friends and Shane's family as we would see them. We even did a little road trip around where we live to stop in and make sure we told everybody that needed to know. Shortly after my eight-week ultrasound, I saw my OB for the first time. My OB was also my gynecologist, so I was already super comfortable with him. We would go once a month for the next 20 weeks and every time I went, I got to hear the heartbeat and they weighed me. Now, because I'm already a little bigger, my OB had suggested that I try and gain no more than 15 pounds, which I did fairly well. So for my 12-week ultrasound, the baby was not cooperating and I ended up having to do laps around the office where I was getting the ultrasound done and ended up having to drink a cold ginger ale to get the baby to move in the right position for the pictures that they were looking for. I was about 12 to 13 weeks at Christmas time and we did a pregnancy announcement at my parents house for Christmas. We just took a picture in front of their fireplace and posted it on social media on Christmas Day. My next ultrasound was my 20-week ultrasound which is the anatomy ultrasound where you find out the sex of the baby. Shane came with me as he obviously wanted to see the baby and again baby was not cooperating. So because they were having such difficulty seeing the sex of the baby they let Shane come in. They showed him the fingers, the toes, and that it was moving and everything was good. He went back to work and I proceeded for an 
hour to walk around trying to get the baby in a position that would show us the sex. I even had to switch ultrasound tech because apparently sometimes they just don't like the tech. Once they found the sex, they put it in an envelope and sealed it with my results in it. They also make you sign a form that they are not liable if they are wrong, which I didn't care about. I'm pretty sure with the amount of time they took to make sure it was what it was, it assured me that they were right. That weekend, we did a gender reveal. We invited all of our closest friends and family to my parents' house in March. It was actually a beautiful day, and we did it with a football theme. My husband ended up kicking a plastic football that broke open and showed us the sex of the baby with a colored chalk. We had a friend fill the ball with chalk so no one else knew ahead of time. We had everybody guess, and then once everybody had their guess in, we went out and kicked the football, and it was a girl. I had always had an inkling that it was a girl. I had dreams that it was a girl. I had bad acne, which if you look at the old wives tales, it says a girl will steal your beauty. And I had never had acne like that before. I was just so excited to have a girl to dress her up in all the pink. I was so happy. And the night after the gender reveal was when it really sank in for Shane that we were having a baby and that it was a girl and that she was coming soon. I'm 20 weeks pregnant, just find out we're having a girl and I'm working and COVID starts happening. About a week later, my work moved me from our main building to another building. They wanted to not only limit my exposure because I was pregnant, but wanted to make sure that if COVID happened in our workplace, that we could still keep the business running. A week after they moved me, I then ended up moving home to work by the end of the month. So my pregnancy was going really well. Working from home had its perks. I was able to sit comfortably on my couch on days I wasn't feeling so good or just exhausted. At 28 weeks, you go down to every two-week visits instead of once a month until you're 36 weeks with your OB. At this point, COVID was in full force and Shane was no longer allowed to come to my OB appointment. It sucked as I got to hear the heartbeat and they measured my belly and weighed me every time. He just really wanted to be there for that stuff. So at 35 weeks, I saw my doctor and everything was fine. Everything was on track and the baby was healthy. I was healthy and wasn't gaining much weight, which was great. At 36 weeks on the dot, my husband had left to go help a buddy do a roof and I was home alone. I was going to put the car seat in the car. Well, as soon as I walked down my front porch steps, I got to the very last step and I rolled my left ankle. While trying to catch myself and stop myself from falling, I rolled my right ankle also. I kind of just spun around and sat down on my sidewalk leading up to my house. At this point, I'm in a ton of pain, thinking I broke one if not both ankles, facing my house with no phone and I know I can't get up. I for sure at this point know that one ankle is broken and the other one just hurts a lot. Luckily, my neighbor was working outside and I knew that, so I started to scream his name. Luckily, after about the third or fourth time I yelled for him, he came out of his backyard with a panicked look on his face and had no idea what to do. I said, Shane just left, call him to come back. When he called my husband, he didn't answer, which was pretty typical of him. So he called my husband's friend that he was with. It rang into the truck and when they answered, he was like, Carla just fell, you need to come back. My husband, being very used to me being accident prone, was like, Carla falls all the time. Meanwhile, his buddy was already doing a U-turn to come back and help me. He was like, yes, Carla falls all the time, but she's nine months pregnant this time. So they both come back in a panic. At this point, my neighbor and his uncle, who were working in the backyard, are with me. The neighbors across the street now see that I am on the ground, and they come out as well. Then my husband and his friend pull up. I'm sitting on the ground in pain, but I was good. The neighbors across the street brought me a walker, and they got me seated on that, and then got me into the car, and Shane took me to the hospital. This is June. COVID is full force, and I now have to go to the hospital nine months pregnant with the possibility 
possibility of two broken ankles. We drive up to the emergency room. Shane got out to ask for help and they told him to take me to the front door as being pregnant, they didn't want me in the ER. So we drove around the front door. Shane gets me out into a wheelchair and I just sit for a few minutes while he moves the car. We go up to OB triage and the nurses don't know what to do with someone who has a possibility of two broken ankles. So I kind of pull myself onto a bed with help, of course, and they hook me up to all the machines. They wanted to make sure the baby was okay. After they watched the baby for a couple hours and knew everything was okay, they sent me down for x-ray of both of my ankles. Turns out I had broken my right leg, which is apparently a very common injury when you roll your ankle the way I did, and had severely sprained my left ankle. So here I am, nine months pregnant, with a boot on my right leg that's broken and a brace on my left ankle that is sprained. At this point, I have been working from home since the end of March, and I am now training my replacement for my maternity leave. I have a broken leg and a sprained ankle and have a lot of stairs in my house. My sister came to stay with us for my final two weeks of work to help me get up and down stairs, and also so I wasn't home alone while Shane went to work. She was also working from home, so she just brought her work to my house. Things are going great otherwise with the pregnancy, and at 38 and a half weeks, I'm exhausted. I take a nap, well, try to anyway, and can feel my stomach contracting. I immediately texted my sister-in-law, who was going to be my doula. Because of COVID, I was only allowed to have one person in the room with me when giving birth, and that was going to be Shane, of course. She immediately comes over and starts measuring how often the contractions are happening. She told me I was definitely having contractions and that if they get any closer together, that we might want to go to the hospital and get checked. So because they were happening and we wanted to speed them up, figuring that the baby might be coming soon, we did a bunch of things that might help induce labor and strengthen the contractions. I bounced on a yoga ball. I ate spicy food. I even pumped my breast as that can induce labor. And by around 11 o'clock that night, they were within range, close enough together that we could go to the hospital. My sister-in-law went home and Shane took me to the hospital. The nurses told me I was definitely having contractions and they checked me, but I was only one centimeter dilated. They said, come back when your contractions are stronger. So I went home and slept as best as I could. My sister-in-law came back the next day. We were now trying raspberry tea and anything and everything to help my contractions get stronger. They did get stronger, but then it would die down again. My next appointment with my OB was 30 nine weeks. I told him what had happened in the last week and he asked if I wanted a membrane sweep. A membrane sweep is when the OB puts a finger into the cervix and makes a circular or sweeping movement with their fingers. The point is to separate the amniotic sac surrounding your baby from the cervix and help trigger natural labor. For me, it was uncomfortable, but not unbearable, especially since I had been checked already. I already kind of knew what the feeling was going to be like. So because I was already in labor, my OB said that the membrane sweep can help speed things up. At this point, I was so exhausted from being in labor for five days that I was ready to kick this thing into overdrive. He did the membrane sweep, which really wasn't that bad, and sent me home with a date to be induced six days out from now. Told me if things get worse, go to the hospital. I went home and all of my contractions stopped. The baby was still moving, so I wasn't concerned. The day had come that I was going to be induced. They can call you anywhere from 6 a.m. till essentially any time at night. I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I just wanna meet the baby. I didn't get a phone call until 9.30 that night. I just got out of the shower and was heading to bed. Shane was outside cleaning up from dinner and the yard when I told him that it was go time. He showered and we hopped in the car and went to the hospital. I was lucky enough to only have 
to wear a mask walking in and out of the hospital. Once we got in our room, neither one of us had to wear a mask. We got to the hospital around 10.30 that night, and I was on Pitocin by 11. Pitocin is the drug they use to induce labor. Everything was pretty slow moving, so they decided to put a Foley in. A Foley is kind of like a balloon that they inflate to encourage dilation. Once they put the Foley in, I could definitely feel everything kicking into high gear. I started to get back pain and back labor, and because of the pucks on my belly, it was hard to keep an eye on my contractions and the baby when I would lean forward. The pucks couldn't read properly. So this forced me to lay back in the bed. It's about 4.30 in the morning. I'm tired. My contractions are in full gear and I can't find a comfortable way to sit. So I called my sister-in-law, aka my doula, and she tells me if I'm uncomfortable, I can ask for an epidural if I want. So I do. When I asked the nurse for it, she said that the doctor won't be happy that I'm asking for it so early. I said, I don't care. I'm uncomfortable. I'm in pain and you won't let me sit the way I want. Please make sure you advocate for what you want, no matter what the nurses say. My sister-in-law had told me that you can ask for one anytime. So I did. So they got me all set up with the epidural, which for me was the worst part of my entire delivery. Took them about six to eight tries and about an hour. I ended up having to hug my nurse because I couldn't arch my back enough while hugging a hospital pillow. Also, they had my feet dangling, which when one is broken and the other is sprained is super uncomfortable. We finally got my epidural in and from here on out it was smooth sailing. I couldn't feel a thing. The nurses came to check on me every 15 minutes from the moment I got to the hospital. So I spent most of the next day sleeping and being up every 15 minutes when the nurse comes in. At around 7 o'clock that night, the doctor comes in and checks me and says, it's time to start pushing. It's about 20 hours after I got to the hospital. The nurse told me to start pushing when I felt a contraction. I kind of just looked at her because I couldn't feel my contractions because of my epidural. So whenever a contraction would start, they would tell me when to push. You do three pushes and then you get a break. After the second round of pushes, I felt like my head was going to explode. So I made Shane get me a washcloth and dip it in ice water and put it on my head in between pushes. He didn't want to see the baby come out, so he was in a safe spot near my head with a chair in case he was going to pass out. While I was pushing, there was an episode of Everybody Left Raymond on and it has to be one of the first ones where they have their first kid and Deborah was also in labor. I told my nurse that I better have this baby before she has hers. It didn't beat her but was so distracted in pushing it didn't matter. So after almost two hours of pushing the doctor comes in and says it's go time. There's about 10 people in the room now ready for the baby. I pushed one last time and out she came at 9.02 p.m. on July 12th. They did have to use the forceps and warn me that there could be marks on her head and face and that because I was pushing her into my pubic bone for so long that her head might be deformed. Forceps is an instrument shaped like a pair of salad tongs or large spoons to help guide the baby out of the birth canal using the head. They did have to use forceps and warn me that there could be marks on her head and face and that because I was pushing her into my pubic bone for so long that her head might be deformed. When she came out, she went over to get weighed and measured and cleaned up a As they did that, I pushed the placenta out. They put it in a bowl on the edge of my bed. Shane said that this was the only time he felt like he might throw up or pass out. Then they put her on my chest. Her head was round and she had one tiny little mark on her face that was gone before we left the hospital. After a little while, the doctor and his resident were sewing me up as they had to do an episiotomy. An episiotomy is when they cut you to prevent you from tearing between the opening of your vagina to your anus. Once they finished, they moved 
move me, Shane, and Ella to a recovery room. We will continue where Erica and I both left off in our next podcast. Okay, so Carla and I are briefly going to have a discussion about our pregnancies and advocating for yourself and your baby. Okay, so during my whole pregnancy and labor, I was in and out of a hospital, and so were you. I just really want to reiterate the advocating for yourself because that's a really big deal. For me, I didn't with my topic pregnancy, and then as my pregnancy progressed, it got to the point where I had a doctor coming in wanting to start labor, and I'm like, go away. No, for sure. When, like, people make fun of me to this day that I'm a book mom, that I've read a baby book, and that I follow the baby book. No, it's being prepared for what you're about to go into. If you know what you're walking into, you can advocate for yourself so much more than just walking in blind. You're just going to be like, oh yeah, they said to do this, let's do that. If you know that you can ask for an epidural when you want and not when they say you can have one, that's a huge big deal. Like I would have been in labor for hours and hours without an epidural, dying in pain, not knowing that I could ask for one. And see, that's something that is 100% true. Like for me, when they told me, just go home, it's an ectopic pregnancy, I just kind of went along with it. Looking back, I would have been like, absolutely not. You're going to admit me. You're going to take me to the other hospital via ambulance. I'm now in your control and you're not going to let go. With so many things regarding pregnancy, yeah, labor and delivery nurses, they deliver hundreds of babies a week, but you are allowed to know, I can't do this anymore. I'm in pain. I want an epidural. I need to have a C-section. Those are things that you can advocate for. If a nurse tells you no, okay, I want a new nurse. You know your body better than anyone else. So if you're done and you want the epidural, you want a different doctor, you want a second opinion, get that. Absolutely. It's so important to just know, right? Yeah. The other thing I want to say about pregnancy is if you think you're tired when you're pregnant because you just get into that like one comfortable position and then you have to pee or you wake up at two in the morning because your kids decide that they want to move, just wait. Yeah, it gets a thousand times worse once they're out. That's for sure. I swear my first probably three, four weeks, I was dying. I don't think I slept more than like 20 minutes at a time for those first four weeks. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure my first month, which you and I are going to talk about next episode, I was on a three-hour cycle because the girls were in NICU. So it was do Kinsley's care, do Reagan's care, go pump, wash the pumpkin, go lay down. Oh, look, it's 40 minutes till the next feed. So I think I was getting probably three hours of broken sleep the first month until I slept through a feeding at three in the morning and woke up with like mean girl mom boobs which were like rocks (laughs) oh yeah that happens luckily that didn't happen for me until like a while down the road but I also didn't have the milk supply you have yes I pumped for another baby so that's like a whole other story but yeah I I don't know going back to pregnancy honestly it's enjoy your pregnancy, take lots of pictures, um, you know, and as far as being a book mom or not knowing anything, I had a list, being a high-risk mom, I had a list of stuff from all the mom groups that I was on, and I would ask my OB, I'm like, do I need to worry about preeclampsia? And she's like, your blood pressure doesn't get over 110 over 70. So no, you don't have high blood pressure, relax. And then I would ask him like, what about this? What about that? And she's like, nope, doesn't apply to you. Nope, doesn't apply to you. But just being able to ask my OB about something and her saying that doesn't apply to you, it put me at ease. And it made me a lot more informed of what it was and why it didn't apply to me. Because even if I'm like, okay, it doesn't apply, 
but what's this? It gave me a better understanding because if I get pregnant in the future, I actually know what that is. Right, for sure. Writing it down or having a list somewhere on your phone or with you is very important. When you get pregnant, the mom brain starts right away and you are so forgetful. You get to your OB and you're like, oh, I had all these, like you walk out and you're like, oh, I had all these questions and I totally forgot to ask. Because you just get in there and it's like they are doing all the things they're supposed to do and then you're just like, oh crap, I meant to ask like this, this, and this. So like writing it down is very important. Oh, absolutely. The thing that killed me was when I had my first OB from zero to 15 weeks that she never really had the time to talk to me about anything. When I went to my high risk OB, she had, I don't want to say all the time in the world, but she really got personal with me and decided, oh yeah, I can talk to you and explain everything. So it was so much easier and so much more calming that all of my concerns were met. All of my needs were met. I wasn't really worried. And if you don't have an OB that's like willing to sit down and give you the information you're looking for, get a new OB. It's okay. You can ask for another one. You can go back to your family doctor and get another referral. Don't feel like you are stuck with the OB you have got. Yeah, my first OB didn't want to transfer me. And I looked at her and I was like, one of us is going to call my new OB and it's either going to be you or it's going to be me. And I got a call from my new OB by the end of the day. Advocate for yourself. Be sure of yourself. I know it's hard, especially because you've never been going through anything like this, especially as a first-time mom. It's terrifying. For me, I had Googled and this horrible pregnancy story of your babies are going to be deformed. There's a huge miscarry rate and it's all of that's weighing on you. And on top of that, you have an uncooperative doctor. It makes everything 10 million times worse. Absolutely. And that's the first episode of Mom Surviving Life. Thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button and we'll see you next Monday.